Hi, I'm Holiday Kirk, and thank you for listening to the New Metal Agenda podcast. If you want to help further expand the New Metal Agenda, check us out on patreon.com slash newmetal underscore agenda. Membership perks include ad-free episodes, Patreon-exclusive podcasts, the ability to submit questions for guests ahead of time, free merch, and more. Thanks and enjoy the episode. Good evening from Los Angeles. I am Holiday Kirk. You are listening to the New Metal Agenda with me today, Cran. Greetings and salutations. This is the Cran father. Double Z. What's up? Celebrity guest, everybody. Big time. Returning to the show after his first round of getting his ass whooped by the new metal allegations. Talk about it. Stin of Chat Pile. Hello, everybody. Welcome. 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 We're talking about, I mean, we're, we're talking about a big one today. Arguably the biggest one. The reason that any of us are even talking at all about anything. We're talking about corn, self titled. Are you ready? 1994, the album that I would say unquestionably started the genre, and I would like to cede the yeah, floor. Please, <laughs> we can have this conversation. No, we can't. Uh, I would like to cede the floor to. I mean, it, okay. Fine, we will have the conversation. We'll have it after I, I cede the floor to Cranfather because this is his number one favorite new metal album of all time. He's got a big history with it. You want to take it away? Oh, uh, yeah. We discussed this in the pilot episode of the podcast. The album came out in 1994. My first exposure to it was a music video channel called The Box, where you had to pay $1.99 to watch a music video. Stan, you remember this? I do. In fact, I have a very box adjacent story with my history uh, of this album as well, but we can get to that later. Actually, you know what? I told mine on the podcast. I pretty much we stole my buddy's dad's credit card and we paid like 30 times to watch uh, the Shoots and Ladders video and then clown after that. Yeah. So when I was, uh, oh man, I, I would think I was probably in seventh grade if I had to guess, but I grew up in a really small town uh, in rural Oklahoma called Asher. And it's like really tiny, like my uh, graduating. Well, I didn't graduate from there, but had I, my class would have been like 10 or 12 people. But needless to say, this is like pre-internet and I, like you don't even have access to like magazines or anything. You're truly out in like the wilderness for the most part. So my exposure to like rock music and stuff was more like top 40 radio alternative kind of stuff, right? Well, one day my parents are in downtown Oklahoma City for whatever reason, and they find an unlabeled VHS tape just like lying in the gutter. And so they take it home and I'm assuming thinking like there's porn or something on it. But they put it on and what they find is some dirt bag has recorded like all these like new metal and alt metal videos from the box. And they were completely disinterested in this video. So they handed it off to me and the clown video was on there and it completely blew my mind. I, it was the most amazing thing. Perfect cultural moment for me. Perfect time and place in my life. And I've been a huge fan ever since. This is like your villain origin story. Yeah, pretty much. And at that moment, you were like, I am going to start a new metal band. <laughs> and then you did, didn't you say you did? Uh, yeah, I pretty much did. But Fucking honestly, guy. it was more kind of uh, up until this point in my life, more like Nirvana based attempts at making music, I think. OK, so I think that we can all just agree. Good album. Yeah, <laughs> it's a good album. album. <laughs> I, I, I've said this a billion times, but I'll say it again. I think what makes this album so miraculous is that it's good but it falls short in a lot of ways that I think allowed other bands, other artists to step in and sort of figure out what those were. And that's how it kind of launched a scene was because mixing it had what mixing is a big part of that production. Well, no, I mean, I think that, I, I think, think that with well, this album, I, I understand I, what you mean. I understand. Weird way to talk about a perfect album. I well, I mean, <laughs> the imperfect mixing ended up being perfect because it kind of opened the door for people to build on it however they saw fit. It was so raw that there I, wasn't like a template to follow. They could just do whatever the fuck they want with what was there. Yeah, this is kind of like the trouble that I feel like comes about talking about this record because it's hard to discuss it the way that I want to discuss it without kind of sounding like I'm dissing it. Because when I say that it's go ahead, you're trying to see something. Go ahead. I, I just need to, we need to back up. What are, what's everyone's grievance with this album? The mixing, that's insane to no, me. I actually I, love it. I love okay. the way it sounds. I love it too. <laughs> I would change, yeah. I would change nothing about 
the album like in general like it's perfect as it is i think it's like technically unimpressive but that shouldn't matter it's art subjective man i just i i kind of have to disagree i think as far as i've heard other people say too that they don't like the mix on that album and i think it's like one of the best sounding like sonically albums i agree like, with you ever made but i, I also totally agree with from. you it's very muddy it's very uh unrefined like if you listen to this and then follow the leader you can see a big night and day difference i know it's a stylistic difference but it's also more technically impressive like you could tell there's more money behind follow the leader than this not that that means follow the leader is better i like the mixing on this and life is peachy a lot more but you can definitely see why people think it's not great well to to give you a little more like uh, rural oklahoma white trash history with corn (laughs) is that you know, of course, after I found this VHS with clown on it, I bought the, uh, it, this would have been around 97 or so. So life is peachy was out at the time. And I bought both records like at the same time, loved them both became obsessed with them to the point where I went to the record store the day fall. The leader came out. And I remember being so disappointed when I actually listened to it because of how slick the production is like, I know that's like a crazy thing to say because it's still a heavy metal record from the 90s or whatever, probably recorded on two inch tape, I'm going to guess. But anyway, it just kind of had more of like a slicker quality to it that didn't jive with me. I think there's something about the rawness of those first two albums that make it so special, you know? We're off to a weird, we're off to a weird start here. But that's that's kind of what I'm trying to say is the reason that Korn self-titled jumpstarted the genre was because it is like perfect on its own terms. But I think that when you listen to it, you can imagine how you literally like you yourself could pick up an instrument and contribute. It's not finished. It's not like when you hear something like, what's an example, like a get a grip by Aerosmith (laughs) or hysteria by Def Leppard. Yes. Thank you. Hysteria by Def Leppard. Like those albums are done. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's a bunch of professionals and millions of dollars all contributing to making a product that is finished. Whereas with this hybrid theory, yeah, I mean, that's always the example Talking I go with. Fish. I wanted to try for something else. But whereas in this case, it's a bunch of amateurs with no money creating something that is not done. And that's, but that's why we got an entire incredible subgenre out of it. That's kind of people, what I was getting at earlier when I said I should have said it's a template. Like this album kind of became a template for everything going forward. It's perfectly imperfect. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's pretty well thought out. There's definitely a couple of, uh, like shoots and ladders to me is kind of like the the low point in the album. And I do think there's kind of a slapdash quality to that song. But otherwise, I I see it as like a very realized product. And, you know, in a way it is because like the history with that album is that they had demoed it and had it written forever with like another singer and everything. So they had a lot, lot of time to kind of live with that material, I feel like. So I don't know. I mean, I, I definitely agree that it, there's a rawness to it and the rawness is what is incredible about it. But as far as it being like kind of a unfinished or unrealized, I don't know if I agree with that. I wouldn't say unfinished. I would say unpolished, but that's a good thing to me. Yeah. Unfinished was the wrong thing to say. Unpolished is good. Uh, see, that, and this is like kind of the thing that I'm always trying to work towards is um, like, OK, so the first Ramones album came out in 1976. So 20 years on from 1976 would have been 1996. And I wasn't really like cognizant of anything in 1996. So I don't know what that album might have sounded like 20 years from then. But what I'm saying is, is that I think that the sonic impacts of the first Korn album are still being disseminated today. Like there's this band um, called Chat Pile that is still (laughs) this band, right? Okay. (laughs) This band is taking elements, sounds, production techniques from the first Korn album and still making incredible music out of that creative (laughs) material. I won't deny that as the person who uh, engineers the chat pile material, I have, you know, obviously the first corn album is uh, a guiding force in that for sure. And that's what I'm saying is that you can still look to this and find new creative inspiration to pull from it to create your own music. Yeah. Well, what I like, okay. So going down this path, you know, the rawness uh, of the album or, or the the muddiness, we'll call it, I, I think it really contributes to how okay a lot of thoughts coming here so for it you know like for instance the entire genre of black metal exists unfortunately (laughs) but but a major selling point of it is that it is one somewhat evil and depressive 
And two, that evil and depressive quality comes out of how shittily it's recorded, right? Or to put it another way, there's kind of like, again, that rawness comes through and that is sort of uh, an element of where that sort of darkness and evilness comes from. It makes and, it feel more real. Yeah, yeah. There, there's yeah. a realness, but it also gives it kind of like a mystery, right? Like, yeah, who, who are these freaks recording this, you know, evil music um, with no technique or whatever? And I think that kind of same concept is parallel with the first Corn album. Like, it's a very dark album, right? But then you add to it this sort of like murky, muddy kind of quality uh, in the sound, and it makes it feel very authentic. I don't know. Um... I really don't think it's that murky. I listened to this album not even two days ago in its entirety. I think uh, the symbol production is pretty clear in David Silveria's playing and much to his chagrin. And I have thoughts on this too. His double bass work is very prevalent. Quote, double bass, end quote. I got to say, I'm not going to get off on this tangent. We could talk about this in a little bit, but those five guys are so lucky they found each other and were able to make that magic as a band together because separately, they're not great. This is not a band of virtuosos. And that speaks to what we were talking about earlier, that this is, it's a sonic force to be contended with, but not in terms of raw talent. Right. It's a triumph of the ordinary. It's like literally like when we were doing the chat pile interview and I just asked you guys straight up, like, do you consider yourselves geniuses? And you all laughed at me because it's like, no, of course we don't. That's sort of the same emotion that I I get from the first Corn albums. It was just a bunch of guys who are, you know, pretty normal dudes that are very passionate, creating something incredible, like defying the odds and history and everything to create something that changed the world. Well, David Silveria probably thinks he's a genius. David Silveria might think he's a genius. Yeah. Does he still own a bar and grill? Good he question. seems like a bar and grill kind of guy. To God, me. I hope it's Did you not grills. know? Did you not know that he actually owned a bar and grill? I feel like I remember because he was in that kind of like stripper core type like band for a second uh, when he was, you know, the new cycle was going around about him talking shit on corn and the new drummer and all that stuff. But I couldn't remember if there was like a TGI Fridays type element, you know, attached to that. Definitely a bit of a TGI Fridays type. Isn't the music video like filmed? Uh, in one of those restaurants it looks oh, like i that. i've never i i will never i i will avoid that at all costs i don't want to know because i love <laughs> I david Sil- i love david silvera's drumming i love it it's so much like everything we've been talking about where like so when i do like my dj sets and i bring in corn songs they're impossible to mix because they're not quantized at all like yeah. he's all over the place and that's what makes it so great yeah that is what makes it great that's what makes it great so it's insanely it's it's insanely imperfect drumming if you were like if he was a heavy drummer he's a powerful drummer but if he he was in the studio if they had hired mutt lang to record this album to produce this album mutt lang would be throwing shit at him he'd be like what the fuck are you doing we can't do this he'd be like <laughs> you have to fire this guy shit at him too i was i just thought that too but for different reasons <laughs> for different reasons but what i'm saying is that like that in that imperfection that groove is what makes so much of this band effective is that they're just riding this crazy groove and you know we'll talk about it later but if they had brought if they had brought david silvera back for corn three that might have made all the difference <laughs> i don't know <laughs> no i think i mean that when i say that i think i mean that if they had had david back in the studio and they were fighting with his ass every day hating the shit out of him i could see that of making a big difference the I, songs I aren't there on corn three he, what he, uh, well, uh, the songs aren't there on corn three it's, it's we'll get not there. that interesting or we, good of an album we will extremely get there soon so oh, yeah we will extremely get there because i've been listening to that album for four so days sorry. straight non-stop you have <laughs> oh have. no i like to start listening to it yesterday i'm about to get schooled <laughs> i'm Are you in like a state of psychosis right now or some shit uh, did that break something in you it really has hold on hold on like hold on guys 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 please <laughs> We we have a we'll dedicated there. we have a dedicated <laughs> arena devoted to this. So let's just talk about the corn album. Let's talk about corn self titled just little track by track. Okay, so it starts with blind, which I think as far as songs that kick off, you know what? I'm actually gonna give Z the devil if I make if I may call you such. I'm gonna give the devil his due. So you're saying it argue you're saying this arguably started new metal. Arguably. Okay. Well, what else could some, have done it? 
Well, Helmet and DJ Lethal's collaboration the year before, or a lot of Judgment Night, a lot of that soundtrack. Or um, if you just want to look in the underground scene, Deftones wrote Teething and were performing that live before Corn formed, back when LAPD was still a band. None of this new metal shit happens without this album. Like, I think what you're describing... It doesn't blow up and go mainstream, but it still fucking happens, I think. Deftones were still doing it. Cold Chamber was still doing it. System of a Down was still inevitably going to form out of the LA art, art metal scene with, like, Tool and Rage Against the Machine fucking rage against the machine was doing it they weren't doing it i think that groove and i think that groove thrash and alternative metal continue their evolution in like a certain direction but without this being the spark that blew everything up you know it's it's fundamentally different we're right now this podcast is the fucking thrash metal podcast we're the alternative metal podcast you know what about a, a new level by pantera i've often thought that that's like maybe the true genesis of the new metal template you know what I'm talking about? It's on Vulgar yeah. Display of Power. It has not like a, a super Not a Pantera guy. You guys got to help me here. Uh, the, the grandfather officially does not acknowledge Pantera. <laughs> Speaking I'll, of I'll third back person. You up here. I think that's another example of something that could have kicked this off without corn. I'll back you up. Yeah. But, but you could, and you could say the same thing about Primus, like, because Primus has some insanely new metal sounding songs in their debut album, but you had to have a band like corn to show every, because even with bands like, okay, so Primus. You know, they you have, have um, Faith No More, obviously. Faith No More could have done this. No, I they, mean, no, they couldn't have. All these bands had talents in them that were like shining stars. You had Mike Patton. You had Dimebag Daryl. You had Les Claypool. You had these guys that were like fantastic talents, their instruments. You needed a band of regular schmoes to come in and make a fucking classic to show everyone that the door was off its hinges. To, to your uh, point, I think actually the reason that Blind and Corn are the true genesis is is the Jonathan Davis factor in, in that of all the other examples that we've listed here, none of those bands have this sort of like emotional uh, rawness or vulnerability that Jonathan Davis does. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of early first wave of new metal is 100% pulling from that at least emotional status in the music, you know? Exactly, exactly. I I can't even think of anyone in metal at the time that compares to this level of bloodletting, of just totally open, fucking look at me, you know, crying out about all this shit. Who was singing about getting, you know, abused by their father in such gruesome ways? Nobody. Yeah, it's the sort of sexuality, I mean... No, but yeah, and struggling with his sexuality openly like, no, you you had to have these guys yeah. had to come along and do it the way they did it. Somebody yeah, that, had that's to the say true pain. X factor. Yeah, yes, you're absolutely correct. Stin, I would expect nothing <laughs> less from you and your band of new metal heroes. That's that's <laughs> what I'm talking about. Yeah, Fucking and- right. And as far as it it being a band of workhorse musicians, you know, I think I would agree with all of that, except for for David. He I do actually think he might be like an actual prodigy of some kind. He's fantastic. I just no, he's fantastic. I don't want to disagree with you. He he was an incredible, an incredible talent. And he really did power this band. He's part of why I say that new metal is a genre of drummers. You know, it's got like their front men. It's got the the flashy guys in the front of the bands. But. I think most of the really truly great new metal bands had incredible drummers. I can't talk shit though, because like any of those dudes could play circles around me, man. So I have no, uh, I have no dog in that fight. You know, you're the drummer, bass player. Okay, I just needed to. Okay, we'll definitely cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> that stays between us. Okay, you're the drummer now. Actually, I don't know if you knew yeah. that, but, but yeah, because of the show, you're now the drummer. Been demoted <laughs> or promoted, depending on how you look at it. Speaking of that vulnerability, um, we were just talking to Health. We were talking to Johnny from Health, and he was talking about like how when he heard the song Blind for the first time, he was like, fuck yeah, this is great. This shit is amazing. And then it gets to the verse with the slow strum chord and the the sort of like whimper singing about places in his mind. And he's like, what the fuck? So I don't know if everyone had that reaction or it was just like a I mean, it might have been an of the moment time, because when I think of contemporary metal bands, I can't think of anyone else that was like breaking it down into something that kind of vulnerable. Not for me, not at all, because, you know, up until that point in my life, I was very much obsessed with like alternative rock music. So it was all very much like loud, quiet dynamics. And I think that's actually why Corn clicks so well for me, because it's like such a natural progression from 
being like a guy who listens to the smashing pumpkins to now I'm a metalhead, but this still kind of bridges that gap, you know? Yeah. The, the, the huge intro and the loud choruses, but then we get into the verse and that's where there's sort of like this, you know, kind of valley. I think Jonathan was pulling a lot from like tears for fears and Depeche mode. Yeah. With his sort of writing style, maybe not well, especially his like melodic qualities. I mean, and as he goes on and he becomes more queen of the damned throughout his career, like it's very much like a Depeche mode kind of vibe yes, going on. True. You know? true, true, true. But it is, I mean, corn, I mean, corn 1994, this is an alchemical moment. It's, it's one of those things that I think is, I think it's, I really do think that the raw creative energies inside of this album are so potent and so vast that we're just not at a point where we can look back and evaluate it properly. I think we're still like casting about for for what it means and where it belongs in the canon and and how good is it really? And we just we're not far enough away yet. There's still a certain amount of time that needs to pass before we can properly sum it up. I don't know. I disagree. I think it's pretty cut and dry. It's the best one of them all. <laughs> no one will ever do better than that. It's just, it's amazing. It's like lightning in a bottle to me. I think it was just like a perfect time, place. These guys kind of like living in sort of their isolated neck of the woods in Bakersfield and being maybe like the perfect mixture of like clever and stupid all at the same time to create this like marvelously new thing that's incredibly vulnerable and emotional, but like kicks ass from every, you know, from the second you hit play. But you're saying that what I'm what I'm saying is that we're like still contributing to this blend of opinions. We haven't reached anything that I would say is a, a perfect consensus. It just doesn't slot neatly into what we would define as great music. It's so it's so jagged and and raw and uncompromising and yeah, it's just not clean enough to be just called great. It has a song on here called F slur. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like that's how that's how that's how um difficult it is to contextualize this properly. It's like we're waiting around like we're waiting for it like, to play out. Kind of like how early hardcore kind of had the same thing going on where everything was just really raw and unput together and very like not offensive in like a bad faith kind of way, but in a these are just regular misguided people just saying whatever kind of way. Like if you look at early dead Kennedys and early black flag, I'm not saying it sounds like corn, but I'm saying you can see a lot of analogies there with no, like totally, production and totally. songwriting and lyricism. Yeah, totally. What guys, what are some other like game changing rock and roll debuts? Well, dead Kennedys, dead Kennedys, Rotting vegetables, kind of like one of the foundational records of hardcore up there. With no, like but I'm, I'm trying and... to think of like classic rock sort of Canon via like Black Sabbath, bands like that. I think that those albums, I think they slot more into a comfortable sort of canon than Korn does, but that's to Korn's strength in that regard, is that young bands and young people can still listen to this and hear like, it doesn't sound like it's in a museum yet, if that makes any sense. Like I think Ner Nevermind by Nirvana is something that's been overly can canonicized and is sort of like safe and clean now. Like you'll hear it on the radio at your office. You know what I mean? Yeah, sure. I'd be kind of curious to know, like, uh, what a young, like, truly young people think of the first Corn album, because I know that there's definitely like a Gen Z kind of like reevaluation of new. Well, maybe yeah, that's not even love the it. right word. Yeah, like, well, <laughs> I don't know if I'm yeah. young enough to answer this question or not. Our resident <laughs> baby, but but I mean, is are you're right though? Is that the album that they're listening to? You know, or is it like Hybrid Theory or it's, you know Limp Biscuit that kind of stuff? It's mostly um just going by like my peer group, people I went to high school with, like around you know twenty two to twenty four. Uh, it's mostly Hybrid Theory, Meteora. It's mostly uh Papa Roach and Fest, Pod, and if it's Corn, it's uh Follow the Leader and Issues. Not really self titled and Life is PG. Wait, when what what era are you speaking from? I'm saying people my age, like Gen Zers, a lot of them tend to like focus more on the early aughts kind of stuff rather than the late 90s oh, stuff. Yeah, that's what was that. on the radio when we were kids. That was what was on Guitar Hero. That's what's in movie soundtracks. That's what we were first exposed to. That's how we got into it. But then I think a lot of them will walk backwards to this, to where it all yeah, started. And... I did. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm on this show. And here we are. <laughs> And then they get into it via that direction. Well, how do you think it stacks up to like maybe more like issues or follow the leader then? Like what's your personal preference? I prefer, uh, well, follow the leader, I think is my favorite corn record, but I really, really appreciate the way that this and life is peachy sound. Cause I grew up, I, I mean, I'm a little weird cause I grew up with punk parents that raised me on suicidal tendencies and the vandals and all that shit. So I kind of like that raw or muddier stuff, but like, 
I don't know. I'm kind of losing my train of thought already. Forgive me. It's been a long day, but uh, <laughs> I think that it holds up just as well. Cause what's the, the most important part is songwriting and a lot of new music that a lot of teenagers are making themselves is very raw and very simple and because of social media, a lot of shit that can easily be kind of, I don't want to say tossed together. That's dismissive, but you know what I mean? A lot of DIY stuff is really big again. So I think that people like me can easily appreciate stuff like this. Cran, do you want to weigh in? I mean, obviously, self-titled is my number one with the bullet, and it's not even close. Followed very closely by Life is PG. I, the follow leader is really where that band started to lose me. Really? Oh, hold on. We're not, we're not, not, we're not, I, we're not doing the negative side of things yet. I'm just curious <laughs> if you had any other thoughts on this record. It was a really, this was a real slow burn album. It took a long time for it to go gold and then platinum eventually after that i think it took off yeah, it quicker and uh, two times platinum in the united states went double plat eventually and um i know they did a really good they did a really well-received tour of europe who did they tour with when this came out it was when biohazard uh yeah. I, I know it was one of them sick but, of it all but they toured uh, for on this album for like two or three years straight biohazard and house of pain Sick of It All was a big tour that I would always see people talking about, like of how they got in the corn. They would go to Sick of It All show and corn was the opening band. Yeah, but um, everyone's waiting yeah, for yeah, me. Yeah. Help me, guys. Yeah, you, <laughs> you were asking me, I think, maybe for my final thoughts on the album. I just I, I heard definitely it in the not, right place. In the definitely right not. Definitely not final thoughts. We are 24 minutes in. So no, not right. <laughs> but I, I didn't know if you wanted to transition to the other side of what we were going to oh, talk about. Not yet. I think we need to give this album a bit more praise before we really emphasize yeah, good the Lord. Uh, flip side here. <laughs> 24 minutes. All right. Well, anyway, I mean, on. All, all the praise you need for this album, that closer daddy. Holy fucking shit. I don't listen. It, to, I never listen to daddy. I feel like I've listened to daddy a single digit amount of times in my life. Song. It's a good song. It's a good it's, song. I mean, you, maybe you turn it off, you know, before it gets to the end, you know, but like, as far as the meat of it goes, it's a great song. I think. Yeah. Right. I don't remember I saying it wasn't a good song. I don't remember saying it wasn't a good song. That part is insanely voyeuristic to the point where it's uncomfortable to hear. Yeah, you don't watch like Schindler's List every weekend. <laughs> okay. Well, you don't watch Schindler's List every weekend. Oh, gee. Oh, Jesus. This guy. <laughs> no, oh, I, saw, you... I saw that movie once when it was in theaters and never again. I just, that's one of those movies where so like, it... I acknowledge this is amazing. Never have to see it again. There. That's there you go. That's what I mean. You don't, Danny, you know, I don't listen. Musically is such a brutal and heavy song. It's such a great yep. album closer. Like you said, if you stop at the right time, if you, you saw them right do time. that live, right? Yeah, but they didn't do the full like. Did you cry like, on stage? Yeah, they they was only. Oh, I mean, everybody. can't ask all that of them. But um, yeah. I That's think right. I think my favorite song off this album is Ball Tongue. It's a good one. Ball tongue yeah. is amazing. That's that's them just firing on all cylinders. He's doing the scat singing and the uh, that percussive sound at the end of the song. It's actually him whipping his uh, microphone cable against his music stand in the booth. Whack. I think uh, the, the strongest cuts on the album are need to ball tongue clown and fake. Fake song, is fucking great. Fake. The older I get, the more I'm just like, that might actually be not only the best song on this album, but like just the best corn song. It's I it's like amazing. lies a lot too. The song right after. I it. like lies. Lies. A is lot good. of people they don't like the stretch from predictable fake lies and helmet in the bush. And I think that's an amazing four song. Yeah, right yeah. There. I mean, it's the best part of the record. <laughs> yeah, you got to open your mind up to the B side of this album because, like, come on, I don't want to have to call it F slur every time. Can I say fage it? I feel like fage yeah. it. Well, was the POD cast call it fage? Fage? Is that what they say? Is that what the POD Fage? I think every time you want to say it, just point the screen. I'll say it because I can say that word. You can't. I need to. I not fucking say it. We can say track six. Track six. I need to put more work. I need to put more work into Fage or track six as my role as new metal CEO of it. Just I. I feel like at some point I need to just be like, hey, this is a great song and nobody's offended by it. I've yet to meet even one person that's like, that song's offensive. Everyone I know is like, this is an incredible song. And it is an incredible song. It was yeah. a force for good in my life. So this is yeah, what every LGBTQ person that likes this band has ever said to me is that, they've, they've identified cr like a ridiculous amount with that song. Yep. Yeah, that, that's my experience as well with it is that people seem to relate to it. And I do think that's why people aren't mad about it is that it is coming from a place of vulnerability. And in a time when being in a metal band and expressing those feelings was definitely not cool. You oh, know? yeah. So, this yeah. is before Rob Halford came out of the closet, right? That was yeah. late 90s when he came out. No, they were. it was an extremely important song. 
And I, I, this actually just occurred to me. We are so lucky that they did not spell it correctly. <laughs> that would have made everything really difficult. It's, it's one letter off from being a yogurt brand. We had to contend with that on the back of the album every time I, we wanted to listen to it. So I'm really glad that they spelled it the way they did. But I will say it's a I think it's a great song. I think it's a bit of a momentum killer as far as like the uh, actual flow of the album goes. I'm but again, that and uh, Shoots and Ladders, those are kind of maybe. Are, are you just saying that because it goes into Shoots and Ladders and you identify that as the big slowdown of the record? I just think that those two songs, they're they're really slow. F slur is like really long too. It has like four bridges in it or whatever. Oh, but those know? are so yeah, kick like ass. I love how many bridges it has. And it's like two completely different breakdowns. Yeah. Both I of think, them I mean, are amazing. The end of that song is so insanely powerful because you know, head screaming at the end, that word, it sounds like a bully yelling at him. So it make it yeah. gives it that much yeah, more it's resonance. Fire. It's so fire. It, yeah, it I think so that fire. song would be a perfect closer if they didn't include daddy. I yeah. think it's a really good closing song for the record. I think I'm you're also, absolutely right about that. I'm also going to say that the the uh, Efsler Fuget is why I feel like that there's more dimensionality to political correctness than people give it credit for. Because you'd look at that song and you'd be like, well, you can't do that. That's not very politically correct. But if you actually talk with people, it's like I said, like, I think everyone understands the artistic merit of this song when you take it on its own terms. And it's like, just it's okay. awesome. I think that they should feel totally OK with performing it, too. Yeah. Yeah. I guess well, that's not. I guess that's. Not, I mean, yeah, they did. Do they, they still? Did. Do they do it regularly? They don't do it regularly. I've seen them a ton, and like, there's certain songs that you think that you would hear a lot, and and that's definitely not one of them. <laughs> um, I really want to see them play it live. So bring that's that back. It's so <laughs> it's so great. It's so great. But yeah, shoots and ladders. If okay, here's my thing. So Sean Olson is the the actual B side from this album, right? I think like swap also out a great song, and it is no and an amazing song. So I say swap out shoots and ladders with Sean Olson, and we have ourselves maybe a flawless record. Do you see what I'm saying though? This is exactly what I was trying to say at the beginning of this, where you know we're all sitting around going, "This is a perfect album," but we can still think of things that they could have done differently that might yeah. have made it even it's perfecter. So okay. I'll give you I my disagree with my, Stan my, because I think that minute and a half of bagpipe is so important to not only that record but to Corn as a band, and it is a good way to introduce the B side of an album. Yeah, I, yeah, that's true. See, again, even I guess maybe my what it really comes down to is my nitpicks with it are pretty slight. Like I would cut the the sort of like studio talking stuff before Clown, like cut that out. And again, yes. oh, of please basketball. cut that yes. out. Yes. I was just so about hard. to say. It's like a minute like, and a half, isn't it? That's yeah, the yeah. only part I was long. just about to say. I was like, I would actually love it if they could just kind of that out or at least one particular word. Just kind of. Yeah. Special that. edition. That one. Anything you know? David Silvera says. <laughs> yeah. In that intro can just. <laughs> I guess I kind of like that. I, I, I don't like the word. I just I like all the other stuff. I don't know. It's just kind of like, do it. Damn it. I'll never be able to put that song on a mix, you know, because there's like a minute and a half of talking before the yeah. greatest song. Is it song the beginning the of Clown or the or end of Need? It, it is kind of funny to hear Jonathan Davis mutter, piece of shit. <laughs> if we could start right there, that'd be great. If it was a hidden track, that would be perfect. Just like have all this noise before a song out of nowhere. But it's not. It's in the middle of the fucking album. Yeah, it's in the middle <laughs> of the album. I kind of like the talking at the beginning of Clown. Word aside, one word aside, I, I actually kind of like the talking at the beginning. It of does contribute to kind of like the rawness like we were talking yes, about earlier. And does. again, I, I think that's like why this album in particular just like has the love that it does compared to maybe like the rest of their catalog is it just like it sounds like people playing in a room like it kind of sounds like you're in the room with them and it's amazing you know it's so yeah. kinetic it, there's so much visceral energy in it like i've listened mm -hmm. to the album three million times since i was you know 11 years old and it does not get old to me it still has the same effect i love it that's why I brought up a uh, early Black Flag and Dead Kennedys. Same shit. It feels like just guys playing in the room. It feels like you're like right there, and it's like tangible. It feels tangible. It feels like something that you could like fucking like bang your head along with them, not just to this record that was like overproduced. That's also why Evil Empire is the best Rage Against the Machine album. Here we go. I concur. All right, hold up. <laughs> I totally agree with that statement. I'm just just good album from a production standpoint. It sounds yes. like you're there with the band. Oh yeah, you're right there. Yes, that's that, a Brendan that O'Brien uh, album, isn't it? Who did yes. issues as well? So and I think maybe an issues is maybe the other. So he's one and one. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you're not an issues guy. 
we, we can talk about that later. I think issues <laughs> is that that's where corn lost me for a long time. That's mm. crazy. This is what that's I, number two this, for me. That's the album that got me into them. No, this is what I am talking about. They, they are the most perfectly imperfect flawed band ever. Like when you guys say it sounds like you're in the room with them, it's like, yeah, the fucking practice room. Like it sounds yeah, it like, rocks. it sounds yeah. like they are still banging out the ideas right there in front of you. And you're lo- and you're watching them and you're thinking to yourself, like they could do it like this, or they could do it like this, or they could do it like this. No, like Fred no, Durst no, no. fucking Fred. It's like Fred Durst watched them in that practice room and thought, well, they could add turntables. They could add hip hop elements. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's why I called it a template. Exa- and that, but we're on the same page with this one where it's, I think that this album had the kind of cracks in it, the kind of jigs in the, in the puzzle aligned in such a way that it, it blew an entire genre up. And that to me is a miracle. It's a fucking incredible one in a million, one in a billion chance of something like this ever happening. Do you not do you not think that the songwriting is is up to snuff on that one or something? See, and this is again, I, I feel like I'm gonna spend a lot of my life now trying to explain this. But when I critic when I sound like I am criticizing the album for being imperfect, I'm trying to also say that it is perfect it had to be exactly as it yeah. was in order to make all this happen you Same can't here. change That's, anything at the beginning I, I think i came off as like harsh on the record but i'm with you i think that all of its flaws are its strengths right because it's easy to be harsh on it because it has those flaws and that's what makes jonathan davis's vulnerability hit so hard he's not like he's not like in the he's not like in a room with Rick Rubin going, yeah, what do you think of this vulnerability? Do you think that this would sell? <laughs> like, if I was vulnerable like this, do you think that would work well on radio? No, he's literally just going in the booth and being like, my dad raped me and crying for five minutes. And that's all making it to tape. And that's what I'm talking about. It's like, you can't change any of that or lose any of that. You might be able to listen to that. Like, that might have gone to the hands of someone at Epic Records and the guy at Epic Records might have been like, you should cut that. And maybe that would have made for a better album, but you wouldn't have gotten new metal if you had done that. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, they're also on the like right amount of drugs and stuff too. So much meth. Arguably yeah. too many drugs, but I mean, it worked. <laughs> you, know how, you know how Jonathan Davis wrote the lyrics to this album? He'd lock himself in a room with whiskey and meth and he would just drink whiskey and do meth and write lyrics. That was literally like how all of the fucking lyrics got written. Well, you can tell because it has that vibe to it. Not that I'm familiar with like what it feels like to be on meth necessarily. He's like, he's like, you know, speaking from (laughs) someone's experience. But, but but, hey, growing up in Oklahoma, I can tell you that, yes, that is sort of the uh, state of mind that a lot of people walk around in, you know? And uh, yeah, I think it, Maybe uh, not condoning necessarily uh, the the use of any type of drugs to unlock any creativity or anything, but I do feel like it did bring all of them to a special place to be able to do what they did, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but it was like they didn't arrive at this place like miraculously. It's like they scratched and clawed and scraped their way to this place. And then even when they put it out, it wasn't like, holy shit, guys, you're number one. Like it was like, okay, you've debuted at. I don't know, like way outside the 100, go on tour and tour. Well, that's understandable, though, because it is such a raw uh, album emotionally. It's so different than, you know, kind of what was happening at the time. I mean, even from what they were doing before it came out. Yeah, this was not their debut as musicians. They were in other bands prior to this. Well, and even have you guys ever heard the demo version with like the uh, the other singer when it was called Creep? Yeah. the dude has kind of like more of like a Scott Weiland kind of like grunge sort of vibe going on, you know? So like there's mm, definitely yeah. iterations, but yeah, I just think like it makes sense that this wouldn't be an instant runaway hit. It's just so in, in a lot of ways, it's incredibly accessible, but it's also, it's really subversive, you know, especially with what was popular at the time, you know, it doesn't sound like Soundgarden or whatever. Yeah. Cause it's very sensitive. It's not macho in the slightest. Um, very bizarre for this particular debut to be on Immortal Epic. Like they must have recorded this for like fifteen dollars to be on a major label. God, I don't era. actually. What did Immortal even put out before this? I actually have no idea what they put out before this. Oh, naturally they put out the Judgment Night soundtrack. That makes sense. <laughs> wow. Oh, that makes sense. You need to interview someone from there. <laughs> oh man, Funk Dubious. Yeah, boy. 
So it sounds like a a genre that we call hunk metal, which is like kind of uh, Faith No More or Red Hot Chili Peppers adjacent stuff where there's usually some type of muscle bound, long haired guy who kind of does a a rapping, scatting type thing. And then a guy who slaps the bass and then some type of heavy metal guitar behind it. I mean, I'm going through the list of like albums released on Immortal and it really is like corn self-titled happen. And they're like, oh, okay, we're doing that now. Because it just becomes just becomes new metal after that. Far, The Urge, Incubus, Corn again. Snot came out on Immortal. No one switched. Yada what yada. What else did they do before Corn besides Judgment Night? I mean, almost nothing. So they did. Well, they did the Judgment Night soundtrack. What? I mean, just being a subsidiary of Epic alone. That's that's what's crazy to me. Yeah, uh, I guess. Me, but... So Immortal kind of just started with with Judgment Night. No, no, no. They literally started with what doobie you be by Funk Doobie. <laughs> that was that was where they started. Man, I should check that one out. I wonder if that has. So any- they hit the ground running is what you're saying. I guess it's not like I've ever heard it. But they started with Funk Dubious, you said? Yeah. Oh, that's some uh, Soul Assassin shit. That's some uh, Cypress Hill-esque uh, boom bap rap. Are they new metal at all? No. <laughs> not even a little bit? Well, I mean, they're very much, uh, they're probably one of the hip hop groups that really influenced new metal because of the fucking bounciness of it. Yeah, I'm going to have to look into that. I want to hear that. Them anyway. and Cypress Hill, pretty good shit. Anything DJ Muggs touches is fucking gold. Cypress Hill, yeah. Um, oh, I mean, we should talk about that. We should talk about some of the influences that actually did get us here. And Cypress Hill is a good one because um, yep. Blind, the ending of Blind, it has that little one off. A one-off tangent at the very end of Blind, and they're riffing on "Lick a Shot" by Cypress Hill. Like that's the riff that they're imitating. So it's funny to me that after everything that Blind is, you know, for the first four minutes, that fucking world-exploding Big Bang moment, they also throw in that bit of hip hop at the very end to be like, "Oh yeah, let's invent Lip Biscuit while we're at it." You know, let's invent, <laughs> let's invent this whole other fucking side of new metal real quick with these last ten seconds. Shit is ridiculous. And that, by the way, is a perfect song. Nothing that I've been saying about the album applies to Blind. Blind is flawless. Blind is like genius. To me, when I when I talk about Corn, the album, I'm usually it's kind of like I'm talking about tracks two through twelve. Because Blind is just like boom, done, flawless, perfect. Never talk about it again. Like we're all we're all set here. So what yeah, you what, what Cram comes right after it, which is also flawless. <laughs> look blind is obviously great far yeah, from my, fucking goes yeah Holy far shit. from my favorite song like yeah i mean it's like you could start the album with ball tongue honestly and it would be amazing you couldn't what are you crazy what are you insane <laughs> need to well, i mean you want to, you want to talk about another uh hip-hop interpolation they uh they cover lottie Dottie in the middle live, well, live play that yeah. song quite a few times i mean which is awesome he's doing lottie Dottie. we like the party <laughs> That's exactly how he sounds. That's such a good impression. I don't think I don't think as as far as I mean, three of us, three of the four of us in here are 30 something kings, right? I'm a 40 something king. Oh, shit. So you're a 40 something popper. Shout out to you. Shout out to you. I'll um, be a 40 something king in like three weeks. Oh, oh, we got some farts in here. There's old farts in here, man. Feeling young for a change. Um, <laughs> I'll make you feel old. I'll make you feel old. I'll be 24 in seven days. But Holy spiritually, shit. you're like 29. What are we doing for your? Are we doing something for your birthday? Uh, I have to work, so probably not. <laughs> oh, yeah, you're a 30 something king. You're 30 before your time is what you are, buddy. This man's celebrating his birthday with the mop in the store. Oh shit! The mop. I'm the fucking manager, but all right. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. My bad, my bad. I won't cut. You, I won't cut you saying you're a manager out. I won't. I feel like the opinions I'm hearing about this album seem to be very divided uh, amongst age. Uh, so maybe that has something to do with it. You just kind of had to be there, maybe. I don't know. Maybe, because like I said, my first exposure to corn was issues and the fall of the leader after that. So Maybe you are correct. Maybe you're making some sense here, though, because it's like the the kingliest among us, which would be you and Cran, are like of the opinion, right? That it's mostly like it's a perfect album. And then the youngest in the room, you're also saying it's like a perfect album, right? But then here I am in the middle of you two being like, it is a perfect album. However, something like that. Like, I'm sort of trying to straddle that line. I feel like you're coming from it from the historian point of view and trying to figure out its place in the pantheon of new metal, which it's obviously at the top. Well, almost at the top. 
But that does, you know, e- even even the most well written hieroglyphics have been worn to death by sand and time. So, <laughs> Whoa, oh, 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 man, oh, getting poetic on our asses. Asses. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Well, hold on. So, wait, do, who in here thinks this is the greatest new metal album ever made? Me, for sure. Yeah. Crayon, you know, I do. Yeah. <laughs> You so too? that's two of us. No, no, no. I think Around the Fur is the greatest new metal I've ever made. And I would say it's Slipknot. And in fact, I have said it's that's Slipknot. My, that's my with, number two. With many, you know, many words. Let me just say, as important as Slipknot's debut was when it came out, and we've talked about this, I dressed as Joey Jordison twice as a host at Applebee's for Halloween and scared families with that mask <laughs> and that jumpsuit. That is what is Probably the one I revisit flex. the least. You what? Excuse you? Probably the one I revisit the least. Yeah, because it mm. reminds you of Applebee's. <laughs> it reminds you of your time at Applebee's. Hey, all you can eat ribs. I mean, no, I just I, I had so much. I lived in that album, and that is the album that drew me towards even heavier music because I had I mean, I had heard drumming like that before, but in context, I wasn't ready for it. like I wasn't ready for Cannibal Corpse when I first heard it. I wasn't ready for Gore Guts when I first heard it. Slipknot put it all together for me because I was still very angst ridden. I was still searching for direction in my life. And I love cussing. Well, hold on. We can't. We definitely. <laughs> That's why I loved Limp Biscuit when I was thirteen. We definitely <laughs> can't start talking about Slipknot on this episode. But question though, you guys may know more than me. Were they on meth when they wrote that album? Because that is the methiest sounding. No, shit at I least ever. one of them had to be. There's fucking nine guys in the room. Maybe when they, meth. maybe when they wrote it. But I know for the recording, they were like militantly sober. Mm, were they though? They I, say I, that I know, I, they were. They were. They, they were. say that. I believe heroin was probably a little more prevalent. I think that was more of an Iowa thing. Iowa was. Oh, fuck. Speaking of, so speaking of, speaking of, um, corn, Slipknot in Iowa, Ross Robinson, he had his career launched by this album. And he's mm-hmm. like, man, I feel like if you, if you had to talk about the greatest new metal artists of all time, you have to include him. Like, he, yeah, he's a producer. But holy shit, holy shit. He's an essential shape the genre. Yeah, I mean, he's and with the first corn album in particular, I I don't think anyone else could have done. Again, it's that lightning in a bottle thing. I mean, he's such an important element of why that album is is what it is. You know, you needed someone that could relate to corn on their terms. You could not bring in an industry vet. You couldn't have brought Butch Viggen to do the first corn album. You had to have someone anything. So, well, he's maybe he, my least favorite producer of all time. So which big? Yeah. What's he notable for? Uh, Siamese Dream, uh, Nevermind, oh, uh, Dirty and Goo. By Didn't he do Youth. Sing the Sorrow for AFI? If he did Sing the Sorrow, then I hate him. Fuck you too. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks for joining fine. me. No, but uh, yeah, I think that when it comes to Ross Robinson and Corn, it's like everything else I've been saying, where it was just this incredible alchemical moment to for every one of these elements to come together. You had to have a producer that was that green and that excited, that full of great ideas and so short on experience in order to make this happen. And well, eager and I, to abuse artists. Yeah, and eager to just fucking throw all decorum out the window and make it happen. Well, well, and, and someone who is willing to embrace what they are doing, right? Because again, if, like if you brought in any other t- like big time producer, I really do think that they would have uh, tried to mellow out the the vibe of what was going on, or like quantize it, or anything like that. Yeah. It's like the, it's the free flowing kind of uh, embracing of what those guys do that really like allowed that album to shine, you know. And in fact, Corn's always at their worst when they're not embracing that spirit of mm-hmm. things, you know. I mean, their worst album, arguably, is uh, them trying really hard to chase after something and refine something. Not the album we're going to be talking about, but uh, we will get to whatever we will get I'm to untitled when I say we can that. we can no, we can package all of our corn criticisms into the next section of this. But um, yes, as for Ross Robinson, the guy launched the 90s with concrete by Fear Factory, which I've never heard. Has anyone you guys have all heard that? Yeah. Is it good? Yeah, it's Fear Factory. It's not they're, as good as the manufacturer obsolete, but it's yeah, still they're, good. They're flawless through Digimortal. Digimortals where they kind of fell off. Well, I yeah. mean, okay, so fine. He launched the he launched the decade with corn <clears throat> and concluded the decade with Slipknot. Fucking insane. And then the year 2000 happens and he does relationship of command for at the drive-in, 
sealing his legacy for another 10 years. Like, yep. that's crazy. That's fucking crazy. That shit is insane. He's a god. He's got I some mean, stinkers in there, though. Such as? The yeah, I know. I'm looking. Album. Which one? <laughs> no, I, th- I thought you said stinkers. <laughs> <laughs> did you mispronounce bangers? Because Which one did you say? The, the the vanilla ice album that he did. There's also uh, I man guys. The Cold Chamber does not hold up. I oh no, I love Cold Chamber. <laughs> he dude. didn't produce Cold Chamber. What's that? He, did, he came up with Korean Chain. The, the first album he did. No, no, it was Ryan Shuck, right? Ryan no. Shuck did. The, no, not Ryan I, Shuck. Jay Gordon. Jay Gordon did the first Cold Chamber album. Jay Gordon did. No, yeah. I'm looking yeah, at the directed chamber people. music. And chamber music's fucking fantastic. I don't care. Ross either. Robinson did not produce either album. Really? Yes. Wow, I've been... the fuck? All the right. Fuck? Well, he's, he's uh, a little you're more. You're thinking Jay Gordon because I'm your directed chamber music. Josh Abraham did chamber music, just for the record. Josh Abraham. Jay Gordon did do Cold Chamber. What the fuck? Boom. <laughs> really? No shit. What the fuck? <laughs> That's right. How you like them apples? I don't like them. <laughs> <laughs> not I much like I man food, i feel like i got food poisoning after a delicious meal now that i know about that well now you do but at least that doesn't sully ross robinson's good name apparently anyway the first album's fine too though i don't know man i would say i feel like i've heard the criticism that corn is i know i've heard people say like oh corn would be perfect if it got a remaster and i've had to be like you are completely wrong I don't think this album would work with production like Follow the Leaders. Absolutely not. It it needs yeah. to sound the way it sounds. It's it sounds awesome. I'd be curious. I mean, you know, as long as they don't delete the old one, I'd be curious to hear a remaster. You know, it would and, uh, it would hit your ears and it would taste like ash in your mouth. It would be like <laughs> I, this is perverse. Uh, the reason I would hate to hear a remaster of Corn Subtitle is because they recently remastered Dirt by Allison Chains, and it sounds way too big. And they, they just they gutted everything that made dirt good with that remaster. Yeah. So I feel nope. like the exact same thing would happen with corn. And I keep coming back to Dead Kennedys, but they just released a remaster of Fresh Fruit for Riding Vegetables, and it sounds like fucking shit. <laughs> so no, because you can't you, you're fixing something that isn't broke. Like you might be able mm-hmm. to look at it and think it's broke. You're not, it's not broke. It's like it's like George Lucas going back and adding CG elements to the first Star Wars movie. Like you're like, well, now we can do CG. Well, motherfucker, we don't want CG. That's not why we liked it, because it didn't have CG. Like, we were waiting for you to add CG. No. Leave the Corn Master tapes where they are, or burn them. And <laughs> the album... No, the album is... The album's production is, like, like literally everything else I've been saying about it. It is flawlessly flawed. And it's the sixth instrument. They recently did a uh, like a re-release of In Utero by Nirvana, and it had like a brand new remix by Steve Albini, and it was meant to be nothing other than just like here's like a fun thing you can listen to if you are curious about it. And if someone wanted to go in and like tinker with that, you know, the master tapes and just kind of like put something out there for super nerds or whatever, you know, I'd probably enjoy listening to that. But yeah, I don't think it like needs a remaster or anything. And again, I mean, the production is like part of what makes that album so great in utero you mean or uh corn uh, well both but corn is kind of what i mean yeah yeah i feel like if they did a remaster of corn self-titled they would put it out the same way they keep doing within utero every five years in a box set that costs 95 dollars that comes with a live album that you already own a t-shirt I, that's printed on like gildan yeah well i am the fan that they would be targeting with that though you know <laughs> i think the way that you make a perfect remaster of this album is just turn the volume up just make it a bit louder. See, I disagree because that, that's like a problem with a lot of like new metal in general. And again, like even with corn going on, it's like it starts getting so brick walled that like trying to listen to it from beginning to end, like actually just exhaust your ears. It's like hard to listen to for that long, you know, especially these 90s albums that are like, you know, 75 minutes long and shit. That's my shit, though. I love just blasting a fucking loud ass heavy album for an hour and a half. Really good album cover, by the way. Yeah. Oh, see that I might disagree with. I'm really? Like, really? Yeah, if, we, if we want to remaster anything, maybe we uh, revisit that one. Oh no! I'm think... the only person I've ever met that does not like this album cover. Yeah, I think the album I, cover. You yeah. see the album cover, and you're just transfixed. You're like, I have to know more. Like, yeah, it's lurid. It's. I don't think it had that effect on me because I was already exposed to so many other like dark and fucked up album covers thanks to my dad's taste in music. Oh, this but cover. I can see why it yeah. captured people's attention so hard. No, if if you saw that when it came out, it was like, whoa. 
Right. Especially, yeah, especially then in 1994. And picking up the long box and flipping it over and just that empty swing that that's probably that album dis- cover. That's a big part of that album. Honestly. I think I'm I would desensitized. not change anything about it. I'm just desensitized because my dad had a copy of Origin of the Feces by Typo Negative. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, so in your, face, my, in your like face, in your face, if we're talking about like uh, things that I would like to correct about like the early days of Corn, like I'm not in love with the the whole like kind of porno aesthetic that they sort of like kind of try to weave into the early days. You see it like all the way through basically like Follow the Leader, those first three albums. I don't know, like that kind of like edgy California guy thing. You know, I feel like they could dial it back a little bit and it would be okay with me. I'm hearing you. I'm hearing you. I disagree, but I am hearing you. I know what you're saying. I think the thing with the first record is the tie in with the child abuse. Sure, sure. And I get that. But maybe it's a little heavy handed, you know, I mean, what? it's fine. I'm not like offended by it in any way. I just kind of think that graphic design has never been their strong suit, you know? No, they have a couple of the worst album covers I've ever seen in my life. Yes. Untouchables and see <laughs> well, on your side. <laughs> you're, you're, you mean you mean when left to their own devices? Because uh, I'm saying I, this is someone that thinks their first, at least three albums have incredibly good visual direction. Because because that was another thing about Corn that made New Metal what it is is that they themselves had an, a look. Well, something that, you could imitate. That is a whole different thing. Their sense of style is definitely revolutionary and a major part of probably why they ended up exploding, you know, over time. And part of what attracted me to them as well, because they look so weird and foreign to me when I saw that music video, you know, it was unlike anything I'd ever seen. But as far as their album art and stuff goes, you know, it, it's kind of iffy, I feel like. Let's swing things back around, though, to the let's focus up before we're at whatever conclusion we have to come to with this one. I do think that one of the other of my many, of our many reasons why we believe that Corn self-titled is the beginning of this all is, is because Blind begins with the words, are you ready? Which like, like, yo, that's a really fire way to kick off an entire genre. Like, come on. That's so hype. That's like raw as fuck. That's like, that's like if on Smells Like Teen Spirit before the drums came in, uh, <laughs> Kurt Cobain was like, was like, I don't know, man. I'm sad. Get out. <laughs> no, in the Jonathan Davis voice. Can you smell this? <laughs> right? Like, I, I don't know. Genres never announce themselves like that. You never get anything that clear of just and that draws like, from their hip hop influence. They're, they're hyping you up. That lyric acts is the hype man. That's crazy. I mean, that's crazy that they just nailed it like it that. It is good. That's a good point. And you also like get all the elements one at a time where it's like, okay, here's some drumming for you. Here's some some groovy syncopated ride symbol for you. And then we're going to introduce a a guitar chord that's not even a real chord. You know, it's not a G major chord. It's some fucking weird ass chord. This dude just made up his Mr. Bungle chord. It says Mr. Bungle chord. Then we're going to bring in a bass line that sounds like this really groovy g-funk sort of walk like it just we just cut and pasted into the track and then we're gonna bring in this uh down tuned a zero two zero three riff and then hey are you ready like you could literally be sitting there as a kid with your guitar well if it was tuned low enough i guess and be like following along like putting the elements together right there well, and they did themselves a huge favor by baking in like the most hype, like live arena type buildup that you could ever imagine too, you know, and they get to play at every single show now for the you know last 30 years. And it is an incredible buildup. Like every show they've ever done where they've played that song, no matter how many times you've heard it, when each element settles into place and it like gets closer to the big impact, you're just like losing your fucking mind. I mean, that's what it's built for, you know, and it worked and it, it continues it took- to work. It must have took a lot of restraint to put it together. Like, I mean, well, they knew what they were doing. It's a groove based band. It's a groove first band. And I think they played a lot live in the early days, too. And just kind of like and, and, and again, maybe that is a, a kind of points to sort of the uh, the the visceral quality of that album is like, I think they really they tested that stuff out on stage and saw how crowds were reacting and were able to like bring, you know, what works and what doesn't into the studio and plan accordingly, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Cran, you've wait, you've hold on. Who in here has actually seen Corn live? I've seen Corn maybe like 15 times. 
I was supposed to see them. (laughs) Supposed to see them a year ago, and I got sick, and no one bought my ticket, so I just lost 150 bucks. Do you guys have any bucks to see corn? Uh, yeah, I bought seats instead of the pit tickets. The pit ticket was like 90, and I bought a front row seat because uh, I was worried about getting COVID in the pit, and then I got COVID at work. Yeah, you're third. You're in your 30s. You're spiritually in your 30s for sure. Hey, man, you saw me at that Omerita show. I was fucking shit up in that pit. So it's I still, true. I can still do it. Guys, do you have any standout memories, though, of seeing them? I only have the one because it was the first and only time. It was the Allison Chains tour. I was going to ask Stan if he was at that show by chance. No, I was not. And what's funny is my standout, my favorite show of theirs ever uh, is when they were touring for Corn 3, <laughs> ironically enough. So we'll get to that perfect albums. That was 2010, and the, you know, because they were doing the whole crux of that album is kind of like a return to form, nostalgia kind of thing. So the set list was really like front loaded with the old timey hits, you know. <laughs> and it was a theater tour, so it was very intimate compared to like seeing them in an arena or whatever. Oh, that is cool. Yeah, yeah that's sick. Mine um, was an amphitheater. And we took a limousine to that show because uh, we were not driving that night, if you know what I'm saying. The show had next to nothing from the early days. They did blind, obviously. Uh, Shoots and Ladders was worked into a medley with their cover of One and Twist. That was it from the first two. Oh, Divine, which was awesome. But that was it from the first two. Everything else was new or brand, brand new. Because this is uh, right after the nothing came out. Oh, Billy, yeah. that's kind of that's bold. I kind of respect it. They didn't play Freak on a Leash? The first two, I said. Oh, they did Freak on a Leash. They oh, did, uh, got the okay. First they, two. Uh, I got it, got it, got they it. closed with Falling Away for Me. They did um, Make Me Bad, Somebody, Someone, which is my favorite song from Issues. I think Corner owed a deep cuts to her. I, I meant, oh, I would for totally real. go I would see. fly out of town to go to that. <laughs> they did that. Uh, the pay-per-view thing or the streaming service, Monumental Streaming Show. My apologies for that. Uh, where they they didn't play blind for the first time live since they've been a band. And it was, uh, I want to say they played four songs they've never played live before. I'd have to look up the set list again. Uh, Like if they did a show where they're like, we're not going to do blind, we're not going to do Freak on a Leash, we're not going to do these songs, but we are going to do Predictable, and we're going to do Lies, and we're going to do... What's like, man, what's another deep? What's another well, one of their deep those, cuts that you would love to hear? Those were the songs that were playing on that tour. Actually, they also carried that over into the Path of Totality era as well. Like those those cuts is what they were playing. I know. I was just thinking to myself, like, what other? Oh, I would love to hear Swallow live. That would be mm-hmm. badass. Lost. Lost. So I, I, I do want them to get more respect out of that, though. I don't want them to ever feel like they, you know, have to play Freak on a Leash, even though they may have to do that. They do. The, the songs you're guaranteed to hear every single time are Blind, Freak on a Leash, Got the Life, Here to Stay, and then Falling Away from Me. You will for sure hear those songs. But those are like incredible yeah. songs. And then <laughs> Coming Undone is another one that they just like won't stop playing. <laughs> and that's I kind of wish they song. would. It's fine, but come on. They're, we, we've only got so much time in the set, you know? True. I'd rather hear Did My Time than Coming Undone. Exa- me too. Again, the 40-year-olds up in here with the, the good taste, you know? <laughs> we're, we're aging like fine wine over here. <laughs> I will say, that I, I like think I, I would hear Creek on a Leash every time live because I think that is the best song Korn's ever written. It's not my favorite per se, but it is everything that Korn ever wanted to do distilled perfectly. I think that's totally a valid take. Absolutely. You know, they, it absolutely is like, it's one of those songs where it's like, probably amongst the top three most popular in our genre where it's still and it's like so it, patient the, the drop doesn't come until three minutes and four seconds into that song yeah i mean it deserves to be as high up as renowned as it is becoming man did it matter as much to you guys as it did to me that it was on that pitchfork list of the best 90s songs i think it I, did yeah I was fucking losing my mind. I was like, no fucking way. I was like flipping. I was like flipping around the room, dancing. I feel like that song is everything Corn ever wanted to do personified. The the atonal non-riffs leading to a sort of unsettling effect. 
my problem you know, if i have a problem with the song look it's it's a great song it it's is too good you, you hate how good it is i hate that it starts with the verse i just wish it had a riff at the top if you could just throw that in there for me i think it would change everything that's actually that's, what I like you? That that's why i think send the pain below is the best chevelle song <laughs> it comes in like you miss something and you have to play catch up i love that about it good way to put it okay but I, I do think we should we should wind this one down. I mean, okay, if I had to personally give like final thoughts about this album, good album. <laughs> it's decent. It's all right. I don't know. I I I think like with we're almost into double digit episodes of the podcast now. And when I listen back to the ones we do, I'm always like, man, I talk a lot. <laughs> so I'm sure I've like yelled my opinion on this one enough for the last hour. So why don't you guys wrap it up for, for me? I'll go first. Korn's self-titled spawned a genre for a reason. The angst, the self-loathing, the heaviness, the despair, and the drug abuse awakened a lot of things and a lot of young people who were looking to make music and make art but didn't have a direction. This album uh, feels like an existential crisis, but in a good way. I think this is one of the greatest albums ever made, particularly in the heavy music genre. Um, it has everything you'd want. It sounds incredible. It's entirely innovative, but just from like a listenability standpoint, it has such a like flow and dynamic quality to it that like so few albums can ever dare to achieve. It just you put it on and it makes you want to nod along to the uh, unlike anything. I mean. And again, it's so visceral and cathartic and and vulnerable. It just kind of has like anything you would ever want. And to its credit as well, you know, like heavy music fans or like people who are like, I don't know, serious metal guys or whatever might want to discount corn for whatever reasons. But that is one of the darkest albums I've ever heard. And I think it it's a huge disservice to not uh, give it that credit as well. So definitely a 10 out of 10 for me. And if I could conclude, I just want to say, I think that people find that I'm critical of this album almost to a fault, maybe to somewhat of a of a suspicious extent. Like, how are you always talking down on this record to some degree? And I want to be clear. It's because I hold this album to the highest standard I could ever hold any album ever. To me, it sits on the same pedestal as Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, OK Computer. Like, I put it all the way up there. So if I ever sound like I'm coming off harsh on this album, it's because I want to give it its day in court. Is that where I'm going with that? I don't think that's where I'm going with that. I want to <laughs> give it its day in court and then lock it away forever. No, I want to give it its due. I want to give it its rightful spot. So I know it feels weird to circle around to being critical of new metal again, but the thing I want to leave anyone listening to this with is that this is a life-changingly world-changingly brilliant album. It's something that could only have ever happened one time and will never happen again. But if you're listening to this right now and you disagree with me, I would like to challenge you from the bottom of my heart to go find some friends and make it happen again because that's how it happens is you challenge yourself to make this kind of big bang happen a second time and then it does and you prove everyone wrong. So do that. Now, we are going to turn this straight over to a part two. We're going to be talking about Corn 3 which is their attempt to recapture the magic of this album on our, our uh, full Nelson series. Thank you guys all for so much for coming to make this happen, though. Thank you so much to our celebrity guest, Stin, for coming on here and really once and for all confirming the new Metal allegations. Stin, thanks so much, buddy. This is Holiday Kirk with the New Metal Agenda, just telling you and reminding you to listen to new Metal at all times. Bug everyone you know about listening to new Metal. Have a great night. Thank you so much. We are out of here.